Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel, and welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the pillars of cybersecurity with Intel's federal CTO, Steve Warren. Hey, Steve, welcome Hi. to the podcast. Thank you, and glad to be here, Darren. Hey, we, we've done one podcast before. Actually, we did two, but one I messed up the recording on. So this is actually take two of that first recording that we did, um, which is the Pillars of Cybersecurity, which you, I mean, this is your bailiwick. Yeah, this is where I live and breathe in, the, in my background. Uh, for those that aren't more familiar, I've been running security projects at Intel for many years before I came to the federal team and uh, had ran multiple security startups back in the 90s, 2000. And we've seen over, those, over the past 25 years, security really evolve, um, both as a science as well as uh, the art of actually getting it done. Um, at the same time, the level of complexity that CIOs, CISOs, and just organizations have to deal with when it comes to trying to secure their data and their systems and their applications has never been harder. No, and, and I think that's pretty rele relevant today. We've had some major, major attacks in the last six weeks. Um, everything you can imagine has is, is been going on, and it continues. It, it's not going to slow down. Absolutely. We, can, we, we see large-scale data breaches, deep intrusions happening up and down the stack, uh, whether it be in, you know, into government, whether it's uh, some of the recent stuff we've heard about some social media platforms that have been completely compromised. Um, to the classic ones that we've seen with, in financial services and healthcare. Um, I think some of the trends we can see is that everyone is fair game. There's no industry that hasn't been targeted, no type of data that hasn't been gleaned, whether it be personal information, financial information, nation's uh, state level information and national secrets, to healthcare data and uh, pharmaceutical data about COVID vaccines. All of it has been fair game to the attackers. And at the same time, we've seen this really increase in sophistication around the techniques, the targets, and the processes that, those, that the attackers are using to get in, to be stealthy, and to go deep. So why, why do you think it's such a, a bigger deal now than it has been in the past? What, what's, driving, what's driving this um, increased hacks increase security? I mean, what, what's, driving, what's driving it? So there's a couple ways to come at this. And depending on which side of the coin you're on, I think from the uh, adversary perspective, uh, the level of skill that they're able to do um, and the, 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 sheer, you know, the reduction in cost, what it took to do a wide scale or deep attack in the past requires much less resources, much less uh, financial in investment. And the scope and scale of what you can do with a small investment is really sort of giving the adversaries a key edge. The complexity of the systems that have to be managed and secured within an organization, whether it be the clients, the, the endpoints to the data center, to the cloud and all the services, there's too many seams, there's too many integration points and too many places for you to get it wrong. And from the security industry itself, there's hundreds, if not thousands of security products and vendors out there that are all trying to solve their particular piece of the puzzle. And so from a CIO perspective, it's got a limited budget and to be able to go and try to provide the right set of controls from the environment, there's only so much you can do and so much that you can handle from the complexity. 
and at the same time trying to vet all of these industry players. It's, so it's a really complex time. And I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, like you, you hear these conferences, people talk of data is the new oil and data is the engine driving. Well, data is the valuable asset. And so when you think about why are the attacks happening, it's because they're going after the data. We don't hear that often about wide scale denial of service attacks, they happen. But you think about where are all the breaches? It's all about data compromise and data exfiltration. It's about the data. And just as valuable as it is to the organizations that hold it, it's equally valuable many times to the adversary so, or to who they're trying to do it for. So do you, do you think that the expansion of cloud, IoT and things like that have made the data more vulnerable then? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's increased the surface area of attack. And so, um, the data itself is now living on multiple systems. It's further away from the control of the enterprise. Uh, there are more integration points, more products, vendors, operating systems, different devices that are involved in managing, consuming, and transporting that data. Every one of those is, attack, is an attack point. From a security perspective, it means I have to secure that many more things, that many more transits, that many more places where data, can, data and data residue can happen the same time from an adversary, it means if I can't get in one way, I can go find another. So there's lots of different, I mean, that, that's part of the problems with expanding into the cloud and things, right? This reminds me of something really funny. My dad is a dentist and he was one of the first dentists to use a computer to store his patient records. And um, he didn't have any security problems at all because he wasn't attached to anything, right? The only thing he was worried about is someone breaking into his dental office and stealing this, you know, 500 pound computer that was in his office. Um, but that's so different than today, right? We don't, a lot of times our data doesn't reside anywhere that we have physical control over anymore. Absolutely. And sometimes we don't often know where our data exists. You've shared your data with a particular organization. Where have they reshared? Or what analytics has been performed no, on that data? Um, and so there's the data, the metadata, and then that would was often turned to the data residue. So as your data flows through multiple systems, what pieces, what uh, parts of that data are left behind or consumable uh, by an attacker that comes along after the fact? So there's, again, it's really about the complexity. Um, my mentor, Bruce Schneider, often talks about how complexity is the, uh, the enemy of security. And I think we see it now that the sheer complexity of any enterprise environment or even a specific application uh, breeds a lot of insecurity. So it's incumbent on all of these the security practitioners to make sure that we do a more holistic approach. We've got to not think about why well, can I secure this one transit between point A and point B? Because that's just too narrow focused right now. We have to think about the, the you know, as, as people have said, you know, follow the bit. Where does the data go? Where does it stop? How is it being processed? And who are all the players and all the different components that are involved and think holistically about how we secure it because it, it's the weakest, you know, it comes back to that uh, weakest link in the chain is where you're going to get compromised. You've got to look at the whole chain. The attack vectors, as you've, we danced around the attack vectors a little bit. They're all over the place now. People aren't just attacking the hardware or a piece of software, there's lots of different attack vectors now. So can, can you elaborate a little bit more on, you call it the people process and technology attack vectors? Yeah, and so it, it really is one of those interesting things. If you think about classically how people have looked about, how do I implement security controls 
quality controls. The, the, the longstanding practice was people process technology. That's how you solve anything. You've got to you know, train your people correctly. You've got to put the right processes in place and bring the right technologies to bear. What people have often forgotten is that the attack vectors can come at all three of those. We've classically been trained to think about vulnerabilities in technology. This operating system has a, a buffer of a flow, so therefore an attacker can get in. Or I can fish or social engineer your, your people, and therefore I can get a foothold into an environment. One of the things we've seen is, A, it's all the above. So an, an adversary is going to use people and technology and process. And I think that's something that we've sort of taken for granted for a long time, is that process itself is vulnerable. Um, I think the most recent kind of attacks we've seen are highlight that, where a end-of-stage development process was targeted as the insertion point. Um, but we've sort of lived with a process problem for years. The patch management cycle was way too long. The time between when a vulnerability was discovered, a patch is released, and then an organization has deployed that patch to all of the systems that were effective, that window of exposure has been too long for forever. And we've always bemoaned it. But that itself has been a fundamental vulnerability or attack vector in that they, an attacker knows they have six months or whatever that window is between the zero day and it being patched to take advantage of that attack. And it's been built into their processes and built in their systems. And we've just accepted that. Yep, there's going to be a window of exposure. We've got to close that, that vulnerability in the process. We've got to be able to move to more automated patching to be able to reduce that window of exposure. But there's a lot of other process attacks that I think we've only just now started seeing, whether it be the build process that was just highlighted in the attacks from the last couple of weeks, to broader situations with software development lifecycle. You know, when do you do your security? Um, I've been quoted years ago as being uh, about you know, security development lifecycle being the most important thing to securing an application and securing a data, and that getting earlier and earlier in the lifecycle is the way to go. Um, that means developers. QA, designers, all have to be involved in the security process. Part of the challenge we're seeing is that it still goes very, you know, sort of siloed. You have the developers doing their thing, and then they transition to QA that does their thing. Then you have audit and build that do their thing, and then you have post-production, maintenance, everyone doing their own thing and well. And again, we see problems where the seams in the transition, if a vulnerability gets introduced, the build teams, the design team said, well, we did everything right. The developers said, oh, I've got unit tests that say everything worked, and the QA says, well, you've got a problem. Where did it come from? And so I think we need to look at these process attacks and process vulnerabilities equally to how we look at technology and people. We do a lot of good training well, and, on and, phishing and, and social engineering, yeah, but we don't do as new, much on the process. Right. This is the, new, this is the new field that we're starting to see with sec DevOps. It's not DevSecOps. Yeah. Ask, a, ask a security guy. It's sec. DevOps Sec or Sec Dev SecOps or you know something like that, right? And and that's an important aspect. Now, understanding all of the different um, security plays that we have is important too, because understanding the attacks is is great. Also, understanding the tools that we can bring to bear is important as well. So. What about those? I mean, what um, we, we've talked about people, well, just do security. We've categorized them. You've done a great job of doing this. So can you go through, hey, what are the security domains that we can leverage in this people process and technology space? That's a great way to put it. Um, I'd like to think of it as sort of six security pillars. Um, and 
unlike sort of the solution stacks where you see everything builds on each uh, up from one to the bottom, there's some that are built and some that are sort of horizontal across the whole thing or vertical, depending on which way you build. So let's start at the very bottom. And this is one that's been highlighted for only the past few years, but I think more recently we've seen it expand and that is supply chain security. Supply chain security, you gotta know where the stuff you're building your technology on, your environment, your mission, your enterprise, your networks, you gotta know where that stuff comes from. You gotta be able to trust the servers, the components, the software that's gonna do everything else. Because without a good supply chain or at least transparency and knowing where those components come from and being able to validate they're coming from legitimate sources, A, you have everything you build on top of that is gonna be built on shaky ground. And B, when something does go wrong, you're gonna have a hard time figuring out how do you rectify it. One of the things that I think is important to understand about supply chain is that there's been a high amount of focus for the vast number of years in government and in industry on hardware supply chain, which is good because it was needed and there was, there was requirements and it was something that was a black box to a lot of people. But I think we focused so hard on hardware, we forgot one of the big uh, low hanging fruit and that was software supply chain. Software supply chain is equally hard and sometimes even a worse black box because at least with hardware supply chain, somebody knows the information. The OEM knows where they get their parts. Intel knows where we get our components. In the software supply chain, you're maybe using pro a product that is com cobbled together from other people's products, cobbled together from open source tools that are cobbled together from other, they, there is a lack of visibility through the entire supply chain. And I think in the most recent attack, it, it highlighted that the supply chain is where the, the problem was. It was a software problem a software supply chain problem. Now there's some great companies out there that are looking at software supply chain security, that are looking at it from an open source perspective, looking at it from a, uh, a evaluation of modules perspective. That's just the tip of the iceberg. And I think that is something when we look at supply chain, we've got to look at both sides, hardware and software. So now we've got our supply chain. We know what, what we're running on. The next step is then host and system security. And that's really about being, being able to, to lock down and secure the thing, whether it be a laptop, a Nook, a camera or a server, whatever that physical device or physical system upon which the applications, workload and data are gonna run, we need to be able to secure that. That means secure boot. That means to be able to have crypto functionalities and other security functionalities available. And it needs to be able to support the higher level stack security features in hardware. But found, foundational to that is gonna be secure boot technologies and crypto capabilities. And that's really about what the system is gonna to do to support everything else. And then above that is where you build your data application workload security. So what are you gonna run on that system? So we know where the system comes from, supply chain security. We know that the system was booted securely and that it's got all the right crypto and other security services operational and available. Now I need to be able to do secure orchestration. I need to be able to do AppSec and be able to protect the application from various types of attacks. And I need to be able to protect my data throughout all of its life cycle. And that's at rest, in transit, and in use. And I think one of the things that's become clear to people over the last couple of years is that we've been doing data at rest and data in transit security for as long as I've been doing security. It was transport encryption with TLS and IPsec and other encryption capabilities, and then full disk and file encryption. The missing link has been data and use and protection. And that's with encryption and with hardware isolation. And I think in the last couple of years, we've seen technologies and solution stacks that are enabling that last mile of exposure around data protection. Now, in parallel with this sort of stack of supply chain host and, uh, and data security, we need network security. And network security really comes in a couple of ways. 
we need to be able to protect the networks, you know, data in transit. We need to have availability of those services and networks. So integrity and availability for your network is, is absolutely important to be able to withstand denial of service attacks, make sure that the data can get where it needs to go. And it's also where you can, you can monitor and protect your networks from the external intrusions, whether that network is an enterprise you have control over or a distributed network throughout the cloud and the edge, getting that visibility and instrumentation into the network to be able to protect it. And it's not just about simple firewalling, it's about active protection. On the other side of the candle, from, from network security and from the host and system and data is identity access management. And identity and access management is a foundational capability. It's about how, knowing who or what. And I think that's one thing that people are recognizing, especially in today's environment, it's not as important, it's not as crucial just to know that it's Steve or Darren that's logging in. I need to know what device, what entity, what software. I need to have identity for all of the things and processes and, and services that are accessing and managing the data. Because if you think about a given transaction, the human being is actually a small piece of the puzzle. Yeah. We do one or two thick clicks on a, on a keyboard and we've done our job, but there are maybe 20 different devices and 100 services and processes that act on the data that also need to be identified and need to make sure they have the right privileges, whether that is as an extension of me or as within their own domain. And we need to have policies, authorization for all of those entities. And I think you know, having been on some of the early standards, both at the government level and industry level around identity, it was always an uphill battle to say, stop just thinking about people. About people. Well, because that's our natural thing, right? Absolutely. People have identity, software, pieces of software don't, or even data doesn't. And I've run into this myself when I've talked to Department of Navy or Air Force, they're saying, hey, we need a full identity strategy for, you know, um, IoT edge devices, for example, Absolutely. or software running out there or data. So identity is, is key th uh, a key uh, vector here for sure. Yeah. And just before we leave identity, I think another thing to keep in mind, as we move more to autonomous processes, whether that's AI driven or just machine learning driven, where the machine or the systems are doing things based on best practices or on machine learning uh, decision making, there's less and less humans involved in the transaction. And as less humans get involved, it becomes even more important to have strong identity for those processes that are gonna be doing things without a human in the loop. Right. All right, the last piece, and this is the, the it's, it's one of those things that's oftentimes at the end of the, of the story, it's well, it's less, it's more amorphous, it's not a thing I can hold on to, but it's the, really the umbrella upon which everything fits. And that is, you know, and it's a combination of things. It's, threat intelligence, it's analytics, it's monitoring, and it's audit. And it's basically having the uh, overarching visibility into what's going on and being able to make sure that things are going the way they're supposed to. And when things don't, having the tools available to go figure out what went wrong, whether it be forensics, whether it be EDR, whether it be AI driven, not just making sure things are going right, but I need to be able to quickly understand what went wrong. And is it something I should worry about or is it just a glitch in the code? And so threat intelligence, threat analytics, and information sharing for that, and, and the continuous monitoring, real time in both scheduled audits and compliance checking, all that comes in this overarching umbrella that drives the data security now. So everything must feed up and feed down. And I think that's the, the, so the foundation of why these all fit together. They're not individual domains. And I think that's 
one of the disservices that as we as a security industry sometimes do is we think about, I'm a network security vendor, that's all I care about. But no, you're a network security vendor who's operating on data and needs to communicate with the threat intelligence system. So we have to think about those those touch points. So it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm seeing the same thing in the IT world. It's a shift from the siloed, I only know about one thing, to a more systems approach across across the board. You have to be a jack of all trades in a lot of uh, perspectives, right? Because that's how you're being attacked now. You're not being attacked just at the BIOS level anymore. An attack yeah, and is think- very sophisticated. It can be at the BIOS and at the app level and a process level all at the same time. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that, you know, we're not going to find enough people out there that are familiar with all those topics, which is why diverse teams are crucial and, and working as a team so that you don't have separate network security teams from your host security teams, from your threat intelligence teams. This is where the successful companies have brought individuals from different domains and said, you are our security team and brought them together so that you have those multiple domains represented and that they can work together and learn from each other. Because you don't find, you know, the unicorn of someone who understands all five of those or all six of those domains and then knows how to implement them in the real world, there are there, there few and far between. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's way too complex. So what is Intel's play in all this? I mean, we, we've talked about the six pillars, right? So what? So, so does Intel is, have a solution for, for the whole thing? I mean, why are you talking to us, Steve, just to scare us? <laughs> you security guys are always scaring us IT guys. Absolutely. It's because we, we find it fun. Um, <laughs> so if you think about what is Intel doing in this space? Intel is a, a component and solution stack provider. We provide the capabilities to enable the enterprise and the mission use cases. Um, we work with our ecosystem, our OEMs, our ISVs, and our channel and the integrators to help deliver on, those, on, on the promise of security into IT systems. What Intel does is it provides those foundational capabilities in each of these buckets. So whether it things like our compute lifecycle assurance initiative to help get the broader OEMs and component providers collaborating on trusted supply chain to providing the foundational building blocks of doing system security. So secure boot starts with the hardware and that's where Intel's trusted execution technology and boot guard technologies play. Having crypto acceleration built in so you can turn it on for data at rest, data in use, and data, protect, uh, in, and data in transit protection without feeling the performance impact. So if you think about where does Intel play, we play in all six by enabling core foundational technologies or by making those technologies run fast enough that they don't interfere with, the, the, uh, with business. And so oftentimes what Intel does is it puts in a couple of new instructions, makes AES that much faster, 11X or more faster than without, and so now you can turn on encryption everywhere without feeling any pain, then there's no excuse not to do it. Or in the case of threat detection and intelligence, you have these overarching solution stacks that are out there looking at the whole network, but they, don't, they sometimes hit a black, a black box of the hardware or of the system or what's running there underneath the OS. So Intel providing primitives like TDT, where a upper level stack solution can get access to CPU level performance primitives to understand what's really running on the CPU and be able to determine an anomalous activity is going on underneath the OS, underneath the BIOS that I normally wouldn't get uh, access to or get the visibility into. We now enable that threat detection system to see where it's never been able to see before. So So it sounds like Intel's silicon technology is all enabling technology 
and we built this ecosystem on top, right? With the software stacks that we help our, the ISVs create, right? Uh, but you also talked a little bit about that. That's the software side, but we talk people, process, and technology. So that's the technology stuff. What about on the people and process side? What, what, are, what is Intel doing in that space? So that's a great question. Um, so a lot of what Intel does, because we are a technology provider, is going to be in the technology space. But I think some of the things that we've been doing, and I think supply chain is probably a great example, is that it's not only about the technology, it's about being able to implement the processes for when you bring in hardware or when you bring in a, a solution stack, how do you get access to that supply chain security information? And so we've built a process with the ecosystem and the industry to enable an enterprise to be able to validate the components and be able to do it, you know, whether it be through a, a certificate in the system itself, to even be able to go out to a blockchain and verify the credentials, if you will, for a given platform and the integrated components that go in it. That's a process capability that we've enabled because of the scale of our ecosystem. We can drive these new processes around supply chain security. Similarly, there's processes involved with data and use protection. It doesn't come off as seeing like process, but having the protection capabilities in the hardware, like SGX, being able to encrypt the, the memory and isolate the, the, code, the data and code for a given application is a great security technology. But without the processes to support attestation, it's, it's sort of, you know, if a server is secure in the woods and no one is able to validate it, is it really secure? No. <laughs> you need those processes built in so that you can validate that information. And that's where Intel is enabling processes, whether it be SGX attestation to the early, you know, TXT and secure boot attestation. And then using that as part of your orchestration process is in our trusted cloud architecture. So the processes have to be enabled hand in hand to be able to leverage the technologies at scale and then the other key thing around process is that it's got to fit into an overall risk framework, whether it be whether you're using so the you know the DoD's RMF or NIST cybersecurity framework or another one. Ultimately, you have to have controls that are enabled by a process that you can map to your risk posture and your risk profile and your risk appetite. And by Intel working with those in, the, uh, in that environment, giving you the uh, the evidence you need and the attributions you need within our technologies to be able to map that into your existing risk framework. But let's not also forget the last piece, which is people. And people sometimes is the, you know, the hardest thing because you're dealing with, you know, randomness, human being, human behavior. So whether it be phishing or social engineering attacks or weak passwords, these are all industry-wide problems. And some of the uh, uh, ways to deal with that is obviously training. Training is important. Training is crucial. But training isn't enough because you, you, the, a moment after they take the training, they've already started to forget it. So this is where process and technologies can help augment by taking some technologies that either make passwords that much stronger or get rid of passwords altogether or taking the impact of a phishing attack and eliminating it because I don't have to worry about phishing anymore if my credential isn't something that can be compromised. The ramifications of social engineering, being able to verify who you're talking to on the internet, being able to use certificates and other mechanisms. So there are technologies that can help um, uh, mitigate some of the people attack. But I think at the end of the day, we still gonna have to continuously train and educate um, our people while at the same time using technology to further enable the reduction of, this, of the attack surface area on the people side. So I, I love how you've tied all three together. Uh, we talk about that all the time on, on embracing digital transformation, people, process, technology, 
Now we have to do it in security as well. We know that we know this is a, a, a key factor. Steve, thank you very much for coming on today. Any last words for, for our audience? I think, you know, it, it sounds like security is hard and I guarantee you it is hard, but there are lights at the end of the tunnel here. We are seeing innovations um, in our ecosystem and with our customers that are looking at how to do this differently. And I think two of the key things to keep on mind or keep an eye on is number one, the adoption and proliferation of risk frameworks so that we make better decisions about what security controls go into place that map to our overall risk appetite and risk posture. And then the push right now, and I know it's, it's a hot buzzword around zero trust. And honestly, if you look at the architecture of zero trust, it's not that new. We've been doing things like this with policy enforcement, but tying the two worlds together, the cybersecurity domains, two policy engines and policy enforcement, and taking an asset and resource approach. So what assets need to be protected according to the policy to deliver on a service or a resource? It's that framework, which ties back into how the, the cybersecurity framework works that I think is starting to bring us together to give you the ability to sort of bring in these disparate domains and provide a comprehensive approach to securing them. So I, I see some really good activity going on around risk management and risk frameworks and zero trust, except we, you know, we've got a lot of work still to do. Thanks for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you liked our episode, go ahead and give us five stars on your favorite podcast or video streaming site. You can also find out more on embracingdigital.com. Until next time, keep moving forward and do something wonderful.